Chapter Twenty of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Twenty. The piston ring burnt off and put the exhaust valve on the blink. That means one cylinder out of business," growled Hawk Erickson. I could fly, maybe, but I don't like to risk it in this wind. It was bad enough this morning when I tried it. Oh, this hick town's going to be the death of us, all right, with Riverport tomorrow and a contract nice as pie, if we can only get there, groaned his manager, Dick George, a fat man, with much muscle and more diamonds. Listen to that crowd, yelling for blood. Sounds like a bunch of lumberjacks with a circus slow in starting. The headline features of Onamawaska County Fair was Hawk Erickson, showing the most marvelous aerial feats of all the ages with the scientific marvels of aviation in his famous French Beloit flying machine, the first flying machine ever seen in this state, no balloon or fake, come to Onamawaska by the St. L. and N. The spring fair was usually a small gathering from farmers to witness races and new agricultural implements. But this time, every road for thirty miles was dust-fogged with buggies and Democrat wagons and small motor-cars. Ten thousand people were packed about the racetrack. It was Carl's third aviation event, a neat though not imposing figure in a snug blue flannel suit, with his cap turned round on his head. He went to the flap of the rickety tent which served as his hangar. A fierce cry of, Fly! Fly! Why don't he fly? was coming from the long black lines edging the track, and from the mound of people on the small grandstand. The pink blur of their faces turned toward him, him, Carl Erickson, all of them demanding him. The five meek police of Onamwaska were trotting back and forth, keeping them behind the barriers. Carl was apprehensive lest his ten-thousand-fold demand drag him out, make him fly despite a wind that was blowing the flags out straight and whisking up the litter of newspapers and crackerjack boxes and pink programs. While he stared out, an official crossing the track fairly leaned up against the wind, which seized his hat and sailed it to the end of the track. "'Some wind,' Carl grinned stolidly, and went to the back of the silent tent to reread the local paper's accounts of his arrival at Onamanawaska. It was a picturesque narrative of the cheering mob following him down the street. Gee, that was me, they followed, crowding into the office of the Astor House and making him autograph hundreds of cards, of girls throwing roses, um, geraniums is more like it, from the windows. A young man, wrote an enthusiastic female reporter, handsome as a Greek god, but honestly, I believe he is still in his twenties and he is as slim and straight as a soldier, flaxen-haired and rosy-cheeked, the birdman, the god of the air. Handsome as a Greek, Carl commented. I look like a Minnesota Norwegian, and that ain't so bad, but handsome? <laughs> sure they love me, all right. Hear em yell? Oh, they love me like a dog does a bone. St. Jeremiah talk about football rooting. Come on, Greek god, buck up. He glanced warily about the tent, its flooring of long, dry grass, stained with ugly, dark-blue lubricating oil under the tan light coming through the canvas. His manager was sitting on a suitcase, pretending to read a newspaper, but pinching his lower lip 
and consulting his watch, jogging his foot ceaselessly. Their temporary mechanic, who had given up trying to repair the lame valve, squatted with a bent head, biting his lip, hearkening to the blood-hungry mob. Carl's own nerves grew tauter and tauter as he saw the manager's restless foot and the mechanic's tension. He strolled to the monoplane, his back to the tent opening. He started as the manager exclaimed, "'Here they come, after us!' Outside the tent a sound of running. The secretary of the fair, a German hardware dealer with an automobile cap, like a yachting cap, panted in, gasping, "'Come quick! They won't wait any longer. I've been trying to calm them down, but they say you got to fly.' They're breaking over the barriers onto the track. The police can't keep them back. Behind the secretary came the chairman of the entertainment committee, a popular dairyman who was pale as he demanded, You got to play ball, Mr. Erickson. I won't guarantee what'll happen if you don't play ball. Mr. Erickson, you got to make him fly, Mr. George. The crowd's breaking. Behind him charged the black press of people. They packed before the tent, trying to peer in through the half-closed tent opening like a crowd about a house where a policeman is making an arrest, furiously. "'Where is the coward? Fake? Bring him out! Why don't he fly? He's a fake. His flying machine's never been off the ground. He's a four-flusher. Run him out of town. Fake! Fake! Fake!' The secretary and chairman stuck out depreciatory heads and coaxed the mob. Carl's manager was an old circus man. He had removed his collar, tie, and flashy diamond pin, and was diligently wrapping the thong of a blackjack about his wrist. Their mechanic was crawling under the side of the tent. Carl caught him by the seat of his overalls and jerked him back. As Carl turned to face the tent door again, the manager ranged up beside him, trying to conceal the blackjack in his hand, and casually murmuring, "'Scared, Hawk?' "'Nope. Too mad to be scared.' The tent flap was pulled back. Tossing hands came through. The secretary and chairman were brushed aside. The mob leader, a red-faced, loud-voiced town sport, very drunk, shouted, "'Come out and fly, or we'll tar-feather you!' "'You come out, you fake, you four-flusher!' echoed the voices. The secretary and chairman were edging back into the tent beside Carl's cowering mechanic. Something broke in Carl's hold on himself. With his arm drawn back, his fist aimed at the point of the mob leader's jaw, he snarled, "'You can't make me fly!' You stick that ugly mug of yours any farther in, and I'll bust it. I'll fly when the wind goes down. You would, would you? As the mob leader started to advance, Carl jabbed at him. It was not a very good jab, but the leader stopped. The manager, blackjack in hand, caught Carl's arm and ordered, Don't start anything. They can lick us. Just look. Ready. Don't say anything. We'll hold them till the cops come. But Nick's on the punch. Right, Captain, said Carl. It was a strain to stand motionless, facing the crowd, not answering their taunts, but he'd held himself in, and in two minutes a yell came. Jesus, the cops! The mob unwillingly swayed back as Onamawaska's heroic little band of five policemen wiggled through it, requesting their neighbors to desist. They entered the tent, and after accepting cigars from Carl's manager, coldly told him that Carl was a fake and lucky to escape that Carl would better jump right out and fly if he knew what was good for him. Also, they nearly arrested the manager for possessing a blackjack and warned him that he'd better not assault any of the peaceful citizens of beautiful Onamanawaska. 
when they had coaxed the mob behind the barriers by announcing that Ericson would now go up. Carl swore. I won't move. They can't make me. Secretary of the Fair, who had regained most of his courage, spoke up pertly. Then you better return the five hundred advance pretty quick, sudden, or I'll get an attachment on your fake flying machine. You go. Nix, nix, Hawks, don't hit him. He ain't worth it. You go at hell, brother, said the manager mechanically. But he took Carl aside and groaned. Gosh, we got to do something. It's worth two thousand dollars to us, you know. Besides, we haven't got enough cash in our jeans to get out of town. And we'll miss the big riverport purse. Still, suit yourself, old man. Maybe I can get some money by wiring to Chicago. Oh, let's get it over, Carl sighed. I'd love to disappoint on the Monowaska. We'll make $15,000 this month and next anyway, and we can afford to spit him in the eye. But I don't want to leave you in the hole. Here, you, mechanic, open up that tent flap all the way across. No, no, not like that, you boob. So come on, now, help me push out the machine. Here you, Mr. Secretary. Hustle me a couple of men to hold her tail. The crowd rose, the fickle crowd, scenting the promised blood, and applauded as the monoplane was wheeled upon the track, and turned to face the wind. The mechanic and two assistants had to hold it as a dust-filled gust caught it beneath the wings. As Carl climbed into the seat and the mechanic went forward to start the engine, another squall hit the machine and she almost turned over, sidewise. As the machine righted, the manager ran up and begged, "'You never in the world can make it in this wind, Hawk. Better not try it. I'll wire for some money to get us out of town with then. Own them. And own them on can go soak its head.' "'Nope. I'm getting sore now, Dick. Hey, you, mechanic. Hurt that wing when she tipped?' All right, start her quick. Well, it's calm. The engine whirred. The assistants let go of the tail. The machine labored forward, but once it left the ground, it shot up quickly. The headwind came in a terrific gust. The machine hung poised in air for a moment, driven back by the gale nearly as fast as it was urged forward by its frantically revolving propeller. Carl was as yet too doubtful of his skill to try to climb above the worst of the wind. If he could only keep a level course— he fought his way up one side of the racetrack. He crouched in his seat, meeting the sandy blast with bent head. The parted lips which permitted him to catch his breath were stubborn and hard about his teeth. His hands played swiftly, incessantly over the control as he brought her back to an even keel. He warped the wing so quickly that he balanced like an acrobat, sitting rockingly on a tight wire. He was too busy to be afraid or to remember that there was a throng of people below him but he was conscious that the grandstand at the side of the track halfway down was creeping toward him. More every instant did he hate the clamor of the gale, and the stream of minute drops of oil blown back from the engine that spattered on his face. His ears strained for misfire of the engine. If it stopped, he would be hurled to earth, and one cylinder was not working. He forgot that. Kept the cloche moving fought the wind with his will as with his body. Now he was aware of the grandstand below him, now at the tevil at the end of the track. He flew beyond the track and turned. The whole force of the gale was thrown behind him, and he shot back along the other side of the racetrack at eighty or ninety miles an hour. Instantly he was at the end, then a quarter of a mile beyond the track, over plowed fields, where, 
upward currents of warm air increased the pitching of the machine as he struggled to turn her again and face the wind. The following breeze was suddenly retarded, and he dropped forty feet, tail down. He was only forty feet from the ground, falling straight, when he got back to even keel and shot ahead. How safe the nest of the nacelle, where he sat, seemed then. Almost gaily he swung her in a great wavering circle, and the wind was again in his face, hating him, pounding him, trying to get under the wings and turn the machine turtle. Twice more he worked his way about the track. The conscience of the beginner made him perform a diffident Dutch roll before the grandstand, but he was growling, and that's all they're going to get, see? As he soared to earth, he looked at the crowd for the first time. His vision was so blurred with oil and wind-soreness that he saw the people only as a mass, and he fancied that the stretch of slouse hats and derbies was a field of mushrooms, swaying and tilted back. He was curiously unconscious of the presence of women. He felt all the spectators as men who had bawled for his death, and whom he wanted to hammer as he had hammered the wind. He was almost down. He cut off his motor, glided horizontally three feet above the ground, and landed, while the cheers cloaked even the honking of the parked automobiles. Carl's manager, fatly galloping up, shrilled, "'How was it, old man?' Oh, it was pretty windy, said Carl, crawling down, rubbing the kinks out of his arms. But I think the wind's going down. Tell the announcer to tell our dear neighbors that I'll fly again at five. But weren't you scared when she dropped? You went down so far that the fence plumb hid you. Couldn't see at all. Ugh! Sure thought the wind had you. Weren't you scared then? You don't look it. Then, oh, then, oh, yes, sure, I, I guess I was scared all right. Say, we got that seat padded so she's darn comfortable now. The crowd was collecting. Carl's manager chuckled to the president of the fair association. Well, that was some flight, eh? Oh, he went down the opposite side of the track pretty fast, but why the dickens was he slow going up my side? My eyes ain't so good now that it's done me any good. If a fellow speeds up when he's a thousand miles away, and there's all these tricks in the air. That murmured Carl to his manager, is the identical man that stole the blind cripple's crutch to make himself a toothpick. End of chapter 20